When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the refugee crisis in Europe. Katha Pollitt will comment from her current post in Vienna. Also, Joan Walsh will comment on the killings at Planned Parenthood in Colorado. And historian Eric Foner will consider the proposals made by black students at Princeton that Princeton removed the name Woodrow Wilson from campus buildings. First up today, the Paris climate talks are underway. World leaders have 12 days to try to agree on plans to slow global warming. We have a report from Naomi Klein, one of our heroes, climate change activist and the award-winning author of This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. Her book, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, is being published in 30 languages. It has over a million copies in print. And... She's a columnist for The Nation. Naomi Klein filed this report from the streets of Paris on day one. So we are here in Paris on the opening day of the UN Climate Summit, which is known as COP21. We are along a street that should be filled with hundreds of thousands of people. That was the plan. Um, Organizers were estimating that they might even have a million people to demand climate action and climate justice, much bolder than what politicians are delivering on the opening day of the summit, to say we have our red lines and those red lines are the deal has to be equitable, it has to be legally enforceable, it has to be ambitious. Um, We know that we can get to 100% renewable energy. We know that we can do it much faster than our politicians are telling us, so let's do it now. That was the plan. And then came the attacks of November 13th. And after that, the French government declared a state of emergency. Obviously, security is a huge issue in France. um, But uh, the French government um, has really pushed that to to eliminate uh, protests during the COP. They said that they canceled that march. They canceled um, protests, demonstrations, anything they described as an outdoor activity. So really what we're seeing here is a show of defiance, because there are 5,000 people in the streets. Everybody who came here had no idea what to expect. We didn't know whether we were going to get arrested. Um, We didn't know how the police would respond. Even the organizers weren't able to offer any assurances. But we came anyway. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that this is a really important message uh, that people are sending on the first day of the climate summit that is saying all security matters. Um, It's not just about state security. It's about human security. Um, It's about the fact that there can be no security in a world of three degrees Celsius warming. What I mean by shock doctrine is when governments um, and other powerful forces 
use a very real crisis, and the crisis in, in, in France is real, to push through things that they would have wanted to do anyway. And we are frankly seeing that because there was already a desire um, to restrict privacy, uh, and, and now those, those laws are being pushed back, and, and, and there's more invasive surveillance going on. At the same time, we also knew that the French government was very nervous um, about what they saw as, as overly militant protests. Um, and they were already pushing back against that. And so now they really are, I think, we are seeing a, a pretty classic example of the shock doctrine where um, the state of emergency is being used to, uh, to, 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 or attempted to be used, to silence demonstrators um, who were inconvenient anyway. But what's happening here is that people aren't accepting that. Um, we've seen preemptive raids um, of activist centers and activist houses. Um, 24 activists have been put under house arrest uh, for the duration of the summit, uh, the kind of a pre-crimes unit that we're seeing where people are being arrested for things they haven't done yet. Um, so you know, this is the sort of atmosphere under which this demonstration you know, is taking place. Well, you know, when you go to a UN climate summit, um, they're incredibly bureaucratic, right? I mean, the language is, you, you, if you're not a climate wonk, it's very hard to understand all of these United Nations acronyms, UNFCCC and IPCC and, you know, all, all of this, and, and that's just the easy stuff. Then you have the temperature targets, the emission reduction targets, but underneath all of that, all of that jargon, all those acronyms, all those numbers are human lives. I mean, that is what is being debated, lives, livelihoods, ancient cultures, traditions. You know, when island nations uh, in the Pacific, low-lying island nations say, we need a temperature target of 1.5 to survive, which was the slogan of island nations um, during previous summits. Um, that, you know, that they are fighting for, the, the, you know, the, this is the most essential fight that you can imagine, right? When, temp, when, when the target of two degrees was set in Copenhagen in 2009, the, uh, many African delegates marched through the halls of the conference center and said that it was a death sentence for Africa um, because it would get so hot that the land would become unlivable. Um, so, you know, we are in this moment in Paris of grief, of mourning, where the loss of certain lives is highly, highly visible. And this isn't about saying that that shouldn't be so, that there is anything wrong with those expressions of grieving. In fact, they're incredibly important. They're an expression of the value of life. But I think what needs to happen during the summit is that circle of mourning, that circle of valuing life has to be enlarged to include everyone. Naomi Klein, activist, author, and columnist for The Nation. Check thenation.com for more from Naomi Klein in Paris. Her reports throughout the Paris Climate Summit are being produced through a partnership between The Nation and the French online journal Mediapart. Now it's time to talk about the refugee crisis in Europe. For that, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and columnist for The Nation. Her latest book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. Katha, welcome. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, you went to Vienna. Did The Nation send you there to cover the refugee story for the magazine? No, I'm actually living in Vienna this year. You say in your new column that the refugees are showing the best of Austria and also the worst. Uh, let's start with the good news. That was actually a quote from a Viennese friend. Um, and uh, the best would have to be the many ordinary people who've uh, volunteered to help this extraordinary 
extraordinary wave of humanity that uh, has been flowing across the country's eastern borders um, this fall. And, you know, you find people bringing food and water and clothes and blankets and strollers at the main train stations, the West Bahnhof and the Hauptbahnhof. There are volunteers who are set up to provide travelers with meals and a place to sleep. And it's interesting, even the right-leaning leaning tablets, which I read because they're an easy German. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, and all my Viennese friends say, why are you reading that? It's terrible. Uh, you know, they have these heart-rending stories from the temporary camps that are, have been set up on the Slovenian border, where people are freezing at night in the open air, and one day baby reportedly died. And then the best story was the same Viennese friend said, uh, do you know who's taking care of the migrants in Germany? Middle-aged women. Mm. <laughs> so people are volunteering. You do, you do see the good side of people. And then we need to talk about the bad side of Austria that has come out in this refugee crisis. Yeah, well, one aspect of the bad side is there's a very squalid refugee camp just outside Vienna, which the UN Refugee Agency said is beneath human dignity. It's really filthy, it's cold, it's very overcrowded. It wasn't set up for anywhere like the number of people that are crammed in there now. And the other bad thing is that the right, very far right Freedom Party is doing better than ever. In, in the polls. Last month there were local elections, and in liberal Vienna, which is sometimes called Red Vienna, the Social Democrats who've controlled the city since World War II uh, were really given a run for their money by the Freedom Party, which got 31% of the vote, while the Social Democrats got 39%. So the Social Democrats held on, but the Freedom Party did better than it had done ever before. So you have a proposal in uh, your new column about uh, what you thought Europe should do in response to this massive wave of refugees from Syria, Iraq, and other places showing up at the borders of, uh, of Hungary and Austria. Tell us about your first thoughts. Well, my first thought uh, was, uh, this is when the migrants and refugees were showing up at the Hungarian border was, you know, this is a miracle. History is giving Hungary a chance to redeem itself because of all the Jews that it allowed to be killed uh, in the death camps in World War II, which was um, 550,000 men, women, and children. And I thought, yeah, they should take in 550,000 uh, men, women, and children in this refugee crisis and become, again, the multicultural society it used to be. Um, and I thought all the European countries should do the same thing, um, which would mean that Austria, which uh, has, uh, for years evaded its share of responsibility for the Holocaust by claiming to be Hitler's first victim, remember that? Oh, yeah. Because somehow they didn't vote for the Anschluss. It was just imposed on them, um, where, in fact... Austria was a very eager partner of Hitler, and so they should take in 50,000. In Poland in World War II, three million Jews were killed by the Nazis and their allies. How would it work for Poland to admit three million Syrians and Iraqis today? Well, it would be a stretch, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> okay. Did you know that Poland is one of the most ethnically homogeneous countries in the world? In the um, world? No, I did yes. not. Yes, most Poles think 
that 10% of their population is um, is non-Polish, but actually it's only 1% um, because uh, one of the things that happened during and after World War II was getting rid for, of the Jews, the Germans, the Ukrainians, the Ruthenians, all the people, you know, that had been part of that very mixed Polish society before the war. So... Um, the Poles not only will not take in 3 million Iraqis, they only want to take, they didn't even want to take in 7,000 now. That's the new government. The new right-wing government is, has just rejected the, uh, the proposal by, the offer by the previous government to take in 7,000. Um, now they say that we will, maybe a handful, but only Christians. And for Slovakia and the Czech Republic, they only want to take Christians, and they have to be devout and church-going Christians. <laughs> but, you know, what really gets me is that these countries entered the European Union. They got a lot of money. They got to participate in the Schengen um, Agreement, which means you can travel to any country um, and and work there and uh, all like that, and they did that. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of Poles um, and Bulgarians went to the UK, and they, you know, so much so that they prompt they pro- they prompted uh, the tabloids to talk about you know Polish plumbers, the Polish plumber problem, because they were going to take British jobs. So it's fine when Poles want to go to the UK, but what about when someone wants to come to Poland? Yes, I see your point, but beneath all of this. I blame the United States for the whole thing. It, it was our invasion of Iraq that began the process that created ISIS that led to this massive refugee crisis. So the United States has a lot of responsibility for the refugees, and I can see why the polls would say, you know, we had nothing to do with this. Why are we called on to solve it? I agree with that, except the polls are part of the EU. That That is where they come in. I mean, they accepted this arrangement to be collect, a, collect, a political collective in certain ways. But, you know, who can really say that are the French and the Germans who opposed the Iraq war and were not involved in it. But I agree with your larger point, um, which is that really this is something that does come down to the United States. If we hadn't invaded Afghanistan, if we hadn't invaded Iraq, uh, these people would not be fleeing their ruined countries. And, you know, and ISIS probably wouldn't be ISIS today. So I think we have a tremendous responsibility, and I think we should fulfill it. Now, you and I agree, then, that the United States has a lot of responsibility for refugees from Syria and Iraq. Obama has proposed or pledged to admit 10,000 to the United States, but public opinion on this has not been good. It's not just the Republican presidential candidates. There's a new Bloomberg politics poll that found that 53% of Americans don't want to accept any Syrian refugees at all, and only 28% said they support Obama's proposal to admit 10,000 Syrian refugees. What do you make of these numbers? Well, I think that um, people are very frightened. You know, with 9-11, that 9-11 is still in our memory very strongly. There was the Paris massacre and the Mali massacre, and and so people naturally think, well, I shouldn't say naturally, people think, oh, yeah, even if these guys are mostly okay, they're going to be jihadis, ISIS people slipping in among them. And that's why Donald Trump said, you know, he 
would take he would take uh, orphans under the age of three. <laughs> uh, I think mean, first it was five, and then he revised that. <laughs> who knows what people get up to when they're four? Um, but you know, there have been two hundred thousand murders in the United States since nine eleven, and only fifty of them were committed by Muslims. But we have this picture that oh my God, they're going to kill us in our beds, and I don't think that's fair. The real it's it's the old thing, you know the. We've met the enemy, and it's us. We are the people who kill Americans. Americans are the people who kill Americans. Yeah, and of course, of course, let me just inject here. The main victims of ISIS are Muslims. The main well, yes, op- exactly. And, you know, there's a 1938 poll that's been going around social media showing that um, it was more than two-thirds of Americans opposed admitting, you know, 10,000 Jewish children into the United States in 1938. It wasn't that they thought the Jewish children were going to murder them, they just didn't like Jews. Wouldn't it have been good if we had opened our doors to the soon-to-be-murdered Jews of Europe? And I think this is, history's giving us another chance, and we should take it. Katha Pollitt, her column for The Nation magazine is a report uh, on the refugee crisis in Europe. Katha, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Now it's time to talk about Woodrow Wilson and Princeton University. Black students at Princeton have demanded that the university remove the name Woodrow Wilson from a residential college and from the University School of Public and International Affairs. The students say he was a racist and they don't want to live in a residential college or study at a school whose name honors a racist. Wilson was president of Princeton before he became governor of New Jersey and then president of the United States. So many students and alumni do not want to make the changes. The student group called the Black Justice League organized a walkout by about 200 students and about 15 students occupied the office of Princeton's president, Christopher Eisgruber, overnight. The next day, President Eisgruber agreed to begin discussions on campus about the demands. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He's an award-winning historian who's written many books, including The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, and Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. He teaches at Columbia. He's also on the editorial board of the nation. We reached him today at home in Manhattan. Eric Foner, welcome back. Uh, Nice to talk to you, John. So what do you think of this idea of changing the name of of a college and of of a center for the study of foreign affairs? Changing names, very controversial right now. Well, you know, I teach at a university that a long time ago changed its name with nobody complaining. Columbia was founded in the colonial era as King's College. After the American Revolution, it changed its name to Columbia College. Uh, You didn't have people squawking in the newspapers like they are today. Oh, we're trying to erase history. They're trying to suppress history. No, because what is the purpose of a name? A name is to suggest uh, somebody you honor, something that is uh, worthy of emulation. Our ancestors here did not think that uh, after the American Revolution and our independence, we should be honoring the king anymore. So they changed the name. What's so big? Why is that a big deal? More recently, we used to have a dormitory here named after the Livingston family, 
who were major slave owners and slave traders in the colonial era. I was a, I lived in Livingston Hall when I was a freshman here long ago. Uh, actually, I didn't know anything about the Livingston's background at that time. Uh, Livingston Hall no longer exists. It's now Wallach Hall. Why? Because Mr. Wallach gave a lot of money to renovate the building, so they just changed the name, and it's no longer Livingston, it's Wallach. Nobody squawked that we were erasing history. In other words, if it's just somebody buying the name, nobody seems to mind that. In fact, down at Lincoln Center here at, uh, in New York, we have the New York State Theater. The name was bought by David Koch, you know, of the notorious conservative Koch family. It's now the David Koch uh, Theater. Uh, people didn't think we were trying to erase history. Across the way, what used to be Avery Fisher Hall is now David Geffen Hall, because he put up the money. Another example, Enron Stadium in Houston. Remember that? Oh, yeah. It's not Enron Stadium anymore. Why do you think that is the case? Because people decided Enron was not worthy of honoring in that way. I don't see that it's such a big deal. The names of things get changed all the time. Uh, usually nowadays, just because somebody buys the name and they kick off the name that previously was there. So maybe the way for Princeton to solve this is to get a rich person to just donate money for that building and then change the name and nobody would complain. The first big question we have to ask you about Princeton is whether the students are right when they say Woodrow Wilson was a racist. Uh, they're completely right. I mean, that's you can't pick up any thing that Woodrow Wilson wrote or book about him without concluding. He was not only a racist, he was a deeply, deeply racist person. He wasn't just your garden variety racist who would say something now and then. Racism was central to his world view. His writings on American government, you know, he was a political science professor for a while, are shot full of racism. His treatment of Reconstruction is deeply racist about black people just not being able to, you know, don't have the capacity to take part in government. As is widely publicized, he, it was under his presidency that the uh, federal offices were segregated in Washington, plus he fired most of the black people who were working in federal uh, offices and patronage jobs at that time. Um, he uh, went, and, and his vaunted liberal principles were only for white people. Uh, for example, as we all know, you know, he went to Versailles, the peace treaty after World War One, to implement, among other things, this notion of the self-determination of peoples. That was one of the 14 points. And, of course, out of Versailles came, I don't know, seven or eight or ten new countries in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Uh, people got the, not in the Middle East, actually, <laughs> there they were mandates. But in, the, in Eastern Europe, the peoples of the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, were given their national um, self-determination. That's great. W.B. Du Bois was there at Versailles, Ho Chi Minh was there, Gandhi, they were demanding the right of self-determination for non-white peoples, like people in India, people in Vietnam. Wilson basically didn't think that the right of democratic control, you know, self-determination applied to non-whites. It was only for white Europeans. Uh, so he rejected those things. Japan put forward a proposal that the League of Nations charter, but Wilson, of course, was an architect of the League of Nations, um, include a non-discrimination clause that members of the League of Nations should not, should not practice racial discrimination within their own countries. Wilson vetoed that. So was Wilson a racist? Was the Pope Catholic? I mean, that is, Wilson, that is Wilson's outlook, his racism. 
what people who defend Wilson say is, yes, it's true he was a racist, but to judge him by today's standards is a historical. He did not live in the 21st century, and it's wrong to judge him by our standards. What do you say to that? You know, I don't agree with that. If, if people were saying Wilson did not support gay marriage, and therefore we should change the name of the building, I would say that is a historical. Gay marriage was not an issue at the time. There was no movement for gay marriage. Uh, so, you know, that would be imposing the politics of the present on the past. But the fact is that in Wilson's time, there were many people, black and white, who were not racist. The NAACP was founded just a couple of years before Wilson became president. Uh, mostly whites actually were involved in founding it, a couple of blacks, including W.B. Du Bois. There were many people who criticized Wilson's uh, outlook and, and views. So it's not as if anti-racism or non-racism was unknown in that society. The biggest argument by the defenders of keeping the name Woodrow Wilson on Princeton buildings is uh, the slippery slope argument. This was made in a counterpetition signed by 1,772 people. Uh, the basic argument is, where will it stop? If you take Wilson's name off now, uh, what about George Washington? He was a slave owner. Are we going to rename Washington, D.C.? Are we going to tear down the Washington uh, Monument. Uh, one one right-wing pundit said that if we, if we accept all these demands being made by black students, everything will end up being renamed in honor of Al Sharpton. What, <laughs> I don't think Al is going to have the building named after him. Uh, although, well, you know, it would be interesting to ask how many buildings at Princeton are named after black people? I don't know the answer to that question. I doubt if there's too many or any at all. Now, by the way, some of my best friends attended Princeton, including you. I've been right? trying to keep that a secret, Eric. All right. Um, my daughter graduated from Princeton. She had a fine education. Nonetheless, Princeton has never confronted its actual history, of which Wilson is just one little part. This was a place which was an outpost of the slave South all the way up to the Civil War, Long after the Civil War, Princeton did, I think the first black person to graduate was in the 1940s from Princeton. So long after many other northern institutions had begun to admit black students, Princeton uh, held back. So, you know, this is part of Princeton's history. The racism of Woodrow Wilson is not just a aberration. It is pretty, um, con you know, consonant with much of the history of Princeton. Now, Princeton is different today. Uh, you know, and I, uh, there are many more black students. It's no longer a Southern institution, I don't think. But, um, you know, people need to confront this. Are we going to have to change every name? Of course, that is always the argument for doing nothing. No matter what it is, you can always make the argument. Well, if we do this, we'll have to do that, 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 and that. And therefore, it's much better to do nothing. All these cases should be looked at on their own merits. And on their, you know, uh, as individual cases. I think Wilson is pretty close to the line that is not acceptable as someone to emulate, someone to honor. As I say, his racism was really very deep, and it had very deleterious effects. What was the effect of, sh of premiering Birth of a Nation, the film, at the White House when Wilson was president? That gave an imprimatur to one of the most deeply racist you know, pieces of popular culture ever produced in the United States. You know, there were lynchings 
after the showings of Birth of a Nation in some communities. Is that something we just slough off and say, oh, well, Wilson was a product of his time? No, I don't think so. I would just add one footnote on the subject of whether changing names is abandoning the past. Princeton itself was renamed in 1896. For 150 years before that, it was called the College of New Jersey. Mm. Eric Foner, he's a historian, member of the editorial board of The Nation magazine. Eric, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. The day after Thanksgiving, the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Colorado Springs was attacked. Three people were killed and six wounded, allegedly by a man named Robert Louis Deere. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's the national affairs correspondent of The Nation magazine. Joan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Well, Robert Louis Deere used the phrase, no more baby parts, that is a quote, after the police arrested him, what what do we make of that? Well, it seems pretty clearly a reference to the, the doctored, deceptively edited videos that were produced by an anti-choice group uh, earlier this year and released to the public um, that seemed to depict, they did not depict this, but they seemed to depict um, Planned Parenthood officials talking about how much money they were going to charge for fetal tissue and, quote, baby parts. The popular version in the right-wing media became Planned Parenthood cells baby parts. Um, they do not do this. They were, they correctly pointed out that they have been, they don't do it anymore, but they have been accepting reimbursement for the costs of recovering and preserving and transporting fetal tissue for the purposes of research, not selling baby parts. But that, that you know, catchy slogan stuck, and it seems like it uh, stuck to the Colorado Springs killer as well. So Planned Parenthood, just to underline this, donates fetal tissue for research, does not sell it, does not profit from the practice. Selling fetal tissue is illegal. This phony video came from something called the Center for Medical Progress. Sounds great. Uh, who are they? Well, they're associated with some of the violent fringe uh, of the anti-choice mo- movement. Uh, their board chair is the president of Operation Rescue, uh, and he's defended uh, people who kill, who've killed abortion providers as, as a, you know, a justifiable homicide because they're stopping uh, a greater evil. I mean, they are people who've lived on the margins, the very far margins, um, but they're now moving into the mainstream. And you know, what's one of the things that it's really sad is that the entire Republican field, with the exception of George Pataki, who no one remembers is running for president, um, has basically endorsed the worldview of, of these people and continue, even in the aftermath of this horrible, these horrible murders, continue to say that, well, Planned Parenthood sells baby parts um, and, you know, propagate this fiction. I mean, Ted Cruz welcomed the endorsement of of Troy Newman, who's the chair of the board of the Center for American Progress, who's also uh, president of Operation Rescue. And and what did Ted Cruz say about the alleged shooter? Oh, he also said that he was a transgendered leftist activist because one crazy right-wing blog uh, 
apparently found out that in, on some voter registration form, he was identified uh, as a woman. There's no other evidence that uh, Robert Deere ever identified as anything other than a man. Uh, but Ted Cruz seized on that to deflect attention from the way that, that the violent rhetoric of his allies may have contributed to, to this guy's action. Well, that was, that was Ted Cruz. What about the other Republican candidates? What have they said or... or or what have they not said? Well, Mike Huckabee, uh, to his credit, called it domestic terrorism, which it is. Um, but to his discredit, he <laughs> attacked it as domestic terrorism, especially to those of us in the pro-life movement, as though they are his victim, the victims of the, of the shooting, not the, not the actual victims and their families. So there's this weird amount of self-pity that the real tragedy of this killing is that it might cause uh, some rhetorical difficulties for people who share the views of, of the, sh- the likely views of the shooter. Um, Carly Fiorina, uh, dis- she did describe this guy, uh, Robert Deere, as a, quote, protester, but she also warned that protesters should be nonviolent, whether it's pro-life protesters or Black Lives Matter. So she equated this lunatic with with the very valid protest of Black Lives Matter. And the truth is, I think John Kasich said something decent about it. The truth is, none of them said anything uh, uh, at least until the next morning. They really took their time where Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and Martin O'Malley were all fairly quick to condemn the shooting and express solidarity with Planned Parenthood. Well, it seems like this this attack video had a big effect on the shooter. What effect has it had on Planned Parenthood's reputation with the general public? Well, there's no evidence that it's affected or uh, hurt it at all with the general public. Uh, in fact, a Wall Street Journal uh, NBC News poll recently found that, if anything, it, the approval rating might have ticked up a few points. Um, it, it, it hasn't really caught on with the general public, but it, but it has become an article of faith uh, in the Republican Party, uh, not just on the far-right fringe, which is where this, th- these ideas used to hang out. Um, and, and I think that's the dangerous thing. I think the other thing that this tells us, that the videos certainly tell us, I don't want to generalize about the killing, but what the videos show is that the anti-abortion movement understands that it has lost the debate. Most Americans, even People who call themselves pro-life believe abortion should continue to be legal. They believe that, in you know, the, the final analysis, the person who has to make the decision, even if they think it's a bad decision, has to be the woman. No one else can make it. So they've lost that argument. And what they've gone to, in a very dishonest way, is restricting access and sometimes even making it seem like their restrictions on access are actually a matter of caring about women's safety and trying to put uh, dishonest or irresponsible providers out of business. So last year you saw Scott Walker, the anti-choice governor of Wisconsin, claim that the restrictions that he signed into law were to protect the safety of the woman seeking abortion, which is ridiculous. A lot of the restrictions they've uh, the, the right has imposed and red states have imposed have to do with uh, forcing doctors who work at clinics to have admitting privileges at local hospitals, which can be really cumbersome to Obtain, especially because abortion is an incredibly safe procedure, um, especially you know in, in the early stages when most abortions are, are uh, performed. The other thing they do is they change zoning laws or they they change the laws that regulate uh, ambulatory walk-in uh, clinics and make them 
sort of live up to what hospitals have to provide. This, too, is a matter of restricting access and puts lots of clinics, has put lots of clinics out of business. So the final step is demonizing the provider. They're not just irresponsible. They're not just putting women's health at at risk, which they're not. Um, They're profiting. They're selling baby parts for money, for cash money, to, you know, expand their empire or uh, make individuals wealthy. That's the down dirty part of, of the video. That's what it's really ref- reflects people who've lost the argument and are having to lie about what goes on. I want to talk just briefly about the three people who were killed at the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Colorado Springs. They included a police officer named Garrett Swayze and two civilians. Uh, one of them, K.R. Stewart, uh, ran back inside the building after being shot to warn the people inside to take cover. He was an Iraqi war veteran. He left behind two daughters. One is 11, one is 7. The police officer, Garrett Swayze, worked for the University of Colorado Police Force. He was married. He had two children. Uh, he was a co-pastor at an evangelical church. Before he became a police officer, he was a junior national couples ice dancing champion. Uh, he was pro-life, but he gave his life defending Planned Parenthood. And the third person who was killed was named Jennifer Markovsky. She's a native of Hawaii. She was escorting a friend to Planned Parenthood when she was killed. What do you make of this lineup of people who all were at Planned Parenthood on the day before Thanksgiving? It's it's tragic. The police officer did his job. God bless him. Um, but you know, it shows the the breadth of who goes to Planned Parenthood and who you know who gets services at Planned Parenthood. You know, it's it's they they demonize this organization that you know the bulk of what it does is provide contraception and uh, breast cancer and uh, uterine cancer screening, uh, testing for HIV and STDs. Uh, in many communities, they are a really if not the only uh, women's health care provider, one of the most respected and reliable. So they they demonize these people uh, as as you know money grubbing uh, abortionists. But the reality is they provide very important care to a huge cross-section uh, of Americans. And uh, something like one in three women will go, has gone to or will go uh, to a Planned Parenthood for some kind of services in her lifetime. Or she will accompany a friend uh, and, and then thereby put her life at risk. It's not supposed to be like that. We don't, we don't lose our lives, um, you know, taking our, our friends or family to the doctor. The rhetoric has just gotten so extreme, and you know I really do think that mainstream Republican candidates who abet this lie about selling baby parts ought to be searching their souls and their consciences about about whether what they propagated and contributed in any way to this demented man's rampage. Joan Walsh, she's the nation's national affairs correspondent. Joan, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. That's it for today. Naomi Klein reported from the streets of Paris on the climate talks there. We spoke with Katha Pollitt about the refugee crisis in Europe. Joan Walsh commented on the killings at Planned Parenthood in Colorado. And Eric Foner talked about Woodrow Wilson at Princeton. 
Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles, which offers a range of courses from social media marketing to TV writing. Find out more at emerson.edu. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat. It's licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.